Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Natalie Haynes. Natalie joined us last year to discuss Pandora's Jar, a series of essays that took us through several women of ancient Greek mythology and examined what parts of their stories we've chosen to tell over the years. One of these women was Medusa, whose story Natalie dives into more fully in Stoneblind. We spoke with Natalie about how Pandora's Jar led her to Stoneblind, some of her influences in crafting the story, and even a little bit about her audiobook narration of the book. So joining us right now, we have Natalie Haynes, a return guest. Um, last time we talked to her about Pandora's Jar. And now we're going to talk about Stoneblind. And Natalie, thanks for being with us again. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We are happy to have you. Um, so Pandora's Jar, you went through um, a bunch of women in Greek mythology. and I did. One of the many women you covered was Medusa, who you now go more into in Stoneblind. Um, so why did you decide that out of all these women, Medusa was the one that you wanted to cover? Well, as I was writing it, um, Pandora's Jar, I mean, every single chapter, truthfully, you're right, there are 10 women in it. Every single chapter, I thought, man, I could write a book on this person. That's so interesting. There's so much to say about it. I could write a book on this person. And that was even true on the occasions where I had already written a book on that person. <laughs> uh, as, for example, with the chapter on Jocasta, I was like, wow, someone should really do it. You've literally done that. Anyway, um, but the one that kind of jumped highest, I guess, out of the them all was Medusa and the reason I think was she was the maybe the fourth chapter I wrote um and I was so angry for her by the time I'd finished it and generally what happens is that the act of writing you know the essays in Pandora are about 9,000 words long something like that so you know they're a fairly respectable amount of time to spend with a character mm -hmm. researching their story looking at how it's been told and retold and that would generally get kind of righteous wrath out of my system but it just, I was so mad about everything that happens to her. I was so sorry for her. I was so angry for her, both for what happens in her myth and what happens to her myth. And I just thought, well, if you're still this cross after 9,000 words, you probably owe her a novel. And, you know, it turned out I did owe her a novel. There were too many times researching her myth for Pandora. So from a kind of nonfiction, quite um, interested, but essentially emotionally relatively distant perspective, I just thought I I just I should know this and I don't know this. This is outrageous. How is this not? Mm -hmm. And by the time you kind of talk to yourself, I was like, oh, just give her a, just give the girl a novel. That's what we're all saying. <laughs> so yeah, it was a really really easy choice actually. Um, in the end. Mm -hmm. So as I read Stoneblind, um, I was thinking about Pandora's Jar constantly. Um, but I, I didn't remember a ton of the details in the Medusa chapter. So as I was reading through, I was kind of wondering oh, you know, how much creative liberty is Natalie taking? How much of this is the actual myth? Um, and then I went back and reread the chapter in Pandora's Jar about Medusa afterwards. And as I went through, I was like, oh, check, check this, you know. So like, you know, you took all of these things that were already there. And, you know, that's- I did, you know, yeah. Um, I'm such a nerd. <laughs> um, but how much creative liberty did you 
feel that you could take that you wanted to take with Stoneblind? Because yeah, it is pretty true. But yeah, there yeah. is quite a lot of space in the myth of Medusa because we don't have very many and, and we certainly don't have very many very detailed literary sources about her. So what we have is an awful lot of vase paintings, lots mm -hmm. of sculpture, loads and loads of visual images of Gorgons and Gorgonea, Gorgon heads um, from the ancient world. Um, but in terms of sort of long form descriptions, we have um, Ovid's Metamorphoses, um, and that is quite a good sort of solid chunk, but it's told largely from Perseus's perspective. There's a little bit of a mention in Pindar. There's a short kind of mention of it in uh, Hesiod and the Theogony. And, you know, things which I thought would be huge weren't huge at all. You know, I thought when I, the kind of motivating point for the start of it was there's a bit in the Theogony where Hesiod says there are three Gorgons. And I was really keen that the, the trio of goddesses was going to be a real thing here um or two goddesses and one mortal gorgon um mm. because triple triple goddesses are a really common thing in greek myth um so we have three fates or three furies or three graces or whatever and i thought well that will be a nice thing to do because we we've isolated her again over the years she tends to be a monster on a cave in a cave on her own rather than mm. one of three sisters and it's like let's give her her context she's a daughter she's a sister these things matter too her name means guardian she's a protector so let's give her all of those qualities that have just been stripped and stripped away because we're so determined to see her as a scary monster who turns us to stone even though as you'll have remembered from the chapter in pandora there is no example i've ever yet found of her turning someone to stone of her own free will you know she's mm. used as a weapon of mass destruction post-mortem to turn people to stone by somebody else that's not the same thing at all so i'm like well mm. why do we think of her as a monster how am i going to reclaim her and the starting point was this sentence, basically, in Hesiod, where he says there are three Gorgon sisters, Steno, Uriali, and Medusa. And the first two are immortal, and the last one is mortal, and that is a wretched fate. Bang, gone. And you're like, dude, I'm going to need a little more than that. <laughs> Could you just... Hi. I thought... And honestly, when I started writing it, I thought this was going to be the central um, kind of tension of the novel would be they know she'll die and they'll never die. And how do you, how do you love when those qualities are pulling you apart, essentially. And within like 20 minutes of starting to write, it became clear that actually the thing that was interesting about her mortality to me wasn't that she would die, but what comes with it, that she would change. Because mm. I hadn't really kind of thought through until this book where gods and mortals coincide over like a lifespan for a mortal, which is like point not 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 one of a second for a deity, and what that would mean experiencing time in these completely both unrelatable but also inexplicable ways. It's like so. How does when they when they meet her, she's just a baby. You know, she gets sort of abandoned with them by their parents. And it's like, well, the first thing you would think is, oh, my God, what if we break it? What if it, oh, uh, don't drop <laughs> it. But then really quickly, you would be, and I wish I could pretend that this isn't me in the lurking inside those Gorgons. Um, I am a, a devoted aunt um, on two counts, but it is absolutely me. That thing where you, you know, you see your niece, in my case, sister in those Gorgon cases. And then like the next day you look at them and they're like four inches taller and you just, how did you do that? I, I, 
How did you do that? You were just, I, mean, you were, I was right here this whole time. <laughs> what were you thinking? And that sense that children change so quickly. And that even if you're, you know, my, my niece's mother said, sometimes I swear she's gone to bed and she comes back down in the morning. I'm like, <laughs> I know, it's just, it's uncanny. It's like, did you like, are you the same person? I know, it's like, are you being swapped out at night? How are they doing this? And so that kind of bafflement and unease mixed with delight and love, um, it was, honestly, it was really joyous to write. And that turned out to be the thing that was most compelling. And I wonder now if the reason for that is because I wrote it when when the UK was locked down so I was separated from my beloved family including my beautiful nieces um and I couldn't see them except on like a video call and and they did change you know they learned to talk in that time it was it was such mm -hmm. a lot to, to kind of and I realized only when I'd finished the manuscript of the first draft that I had basically written myself a new family <laughs> to keep me company <laughs> like hi loved ones I've made new ones over here <laughs> so, <laughs> there is an element of that going on but within all of that I am still trying to stay really loyal to ancient sources but the the advantage slash disadvantage for that is that there's a limit to how much they're ever going to think about emotions, especially those experienced by, you know, non-human creatures. So even Ovid, who's an absolute, you know, genius for imagining emotions, and, and particularly the emotions of women, as you can see from his extraordinary collection, The Heroides, even he doesn't spend a lot of time thinking, what's it like to be cursed with the ability I guess, to be able to turn things to stone, but that you can't kind of turn it off. So you yeah. can't look at anything without without destroying it. And it seemed to me that this was, was such a tragedy at the very core of this story. And indeed, tragedies were written about the Gorgons. There's, there's one called the Forkidas, the Daughters of Forkis, the, the Three Gorgons, um, but it doesn't survive to us, even in fragments, I don't think. Um, so th there, there was definitely the potential there for this sort of, deeply dramatic um, way of telling the story. And that's what I wanted to do. But by far, compared with A Thousand Ships, which you know is, tells the story of the Trojan War, where there are loads of literary sources, long form narratives that show you huge you know, chunks of the war at a time. This one was much more kind of um, gleaned from tiny fragments here and there. And as I say, artworks were hugely important there's one scene which is entirely lifted from a, a hydra or a big water jug held in the metropolitan museum uh in new york so yeah i love that um and i'm glad you mentioned a thousand ships because going into this i, I was thinking about a thousand ships you know how that is such an expansive story covers all these characters and i was like all right medusa this is going to be a much narrower story um <laughs> but then of course um, as long. you know, I get a few chapters into it and I realize, oh, no, this is, you know, very expansive, M maybe even more so than A Thousand Ships. It covers yeah. so much time, so many characters. Um, there were points where I almost, you know, forgot it was Medusa's story because there were so many other things happening. Um, was it was that your intention going in it to was. make it this expansive? Yes, yeah. it was. I think there's a real um, tendency where women's lives are concerned to think that essentially they should be kind of constrained by the domestic. And mm -hmm. I get that because obviously for the vast majority of history, women's lives have been constrained to the domestic. And it's not like you can't have the most incredible life shattering experiences, you know, in one day in a woman's 
relatively small domestic life. Um, I, I give you Mrs. Dalloway <laughs> and, and let us never speak of this again. You know, of course you can. Of course you can create this incredible tension and drama from just this tiny, tiny moment. But I wanted to create and I wanted to sort of argue with ships and and equally with Stoneblind that essentially these women's lives are epic. You know, they do belong in this huge expanse of story because there are so many characters, so many goddesses, so many gods, so many mortals who are influencing and influenced by the life of these Gorgons, who most most of them will never even meet them or see them. And yet there are these constant ripples of uh, of actions that, that go across huge quantities of time and space. And it was, like, it was irresistible to me. I did start out thinking maybe this time this will be my first kind of single voice novel. And it, I, I didn't last long. I just, I really <laughs> didn't last long. And it was purely me as well, because I told myself as I was doing it, the, the sort of opening chunk with the Gorgons, that I was like, I just don't want to, it's fine. I mean, it'll hold the thing up and then I'll come back and fix it later. And indeed I did go back and fix it later. But when I handed the manuscript to my editors in the UK, who, who see it before my US editors do, um, you know, all their green ink was here going, please give us more, please give us more Gorgons. So I was like, oh, so actually I thought there was something intrinsically undramatic about this sort of part of the story. But but of course it was me, as always with these things. You think it's the world, but of course it's you. And and as soon as I kind of went back, having built all these other characters in this hugely complicated web of you know figures that would interact with one another across this enormous expanse of the world uh, as as guessed at by the greeks um because their their idea of uh, geography i mean hesiod is is obviously not really trying too hard but even when you get to people who are trying a bit harder like um herodotus herodotus's notion of of what Africa looks like. <laughs> There's a fantastic map somewhere which where someone's made a set of maps according to what ancient authors describe this place as looking like. And you're like, yep, <laughs> there we go. So you have this huge kind of landscape to fill in. Um, and these this enormous rogues gallery, I guess, of characters to fit into it. And there are moments where, you know, there isn't a location or the location is so contested that I could just choose one. So the, the the big action sequence of this book, or at least of the first half of the book, I guess, is the Gigantomachy, the battle between the gods and the giants. And that takes place in a place called Phlegra, um, which very conveniently is cited in at least three different parts of two different countries. And so it really <laughs> the case because I couldn't leave the UK you know flights were grounded I wouldn't have been able to get into Greece even if I'd been able to get out of the UK I did just have to sit here looking endlessly at kind of satellite pictures and maps and find and going well could you fit like 12 Olympian gods plus another let's say I don't know like 10 fate scorpions or something, and then how many giants on the other it's like yeah no that'll fit perfect <laughs> using yeah. google maps to figure out the physics of God's setting. I love it. Of, a, of giants versus God's war. Yeah. And <laughs> yes. I yes. Yeah. <laughs> How did and you I, spend um, your lockdown? Well, you know, differently from most people, I think. <laughs> you know, I think that's a pretty good way to spend it. If we ever have another one, maybe, maybe that's what I'll do. I, I can only recommend it. <laughs> um, but I love that you used the word ripples to describe how expansive the story is. I think that's such a good um that capture so well how all these threads sort of tie into Medusa's story. Um, 
I, you know, each time we went to a different character, I was immediately thinking like, okay, how is this gonna, you know, how is this gonna connect? How is this all gonna come together? Um, and Did I you think like I'd really... lost my mind when you had a chapter narrated by a really snooty tree? <laughs> oh, I loved like the the trees. The um, there was one I'm blanking. It was um, the was it the, a raven or a crow? Oh, or... the chatterbox crow. I love yes, the chatterbox yes. crow. Yes, that was that, <laughs> that was a Ovid. very fun one. Yeah, yeah, that's um, straight out of Ovid. But the crow gets like two lines in Ovid, and I gave her a whole chapter because how could you not? She was so and the audiobook of reading the crow. And again, you know, I could check in with friends in Greece because, you know, animals tend to make different noises in different countries. So dogs say woof in the UK, but they say bow in, and so on and so on. Um, and frogs are a great one. Uh, Greek mm. frogs say brekikakex coax rather than mm. ribbit or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, crows say kra kra in Greek. So that's mm -hmm. why the crow says kra. Oh, I love that. Um mm. Yeah, and that in English, whole... I think we would say "call." I think that's the noise that they. Call. Make. Yeah, yeah, like the call, but, call. Yeah, exactly. But for the Greeks, there's a so yeah, cra cra. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, but I feel like that expansive nature is just so true to Greek mythology, and I think that's one of the things I really love about reading your work is that as much as it does have this sort of modern sensibility as far as you know how you look at women. Um, it does also read very, it doesn't read as anachronistic at all. Like, you know, you could give it, I feel like you could give it to someone and be like, this is a translation of the original Greek and they could believe it because it really comes across that way. Oh, good. That's always my goal. Um, because of course it has to belong to now, you know, myths are a mirror. I'm sure we talked about this with Pandora, huh? Mm -hmm. um, so they reflect the time in which they're written and the time in which they're received. Um, equally successfully I think so yeah my goal is always to say essentially this is the version of this story that could only be told now in the 21st century by this person me this feminist this woman this you mm -hmm. know centering of these characters and yet at the same time I really wanted to retain a sense a, a, a very solid tangible sense of ancient artifacts, ancient storytelling, ancient poetry. I mean, you know, why wouldn't I have been reading this stuff since I was, well, in Latin since I was 12, in ancient Greek since I was 14. So yeah, it's been my life for an awfully long time. That's great. And it, it really shows. <laughs> Thank you. Um, another question I have for you, um, Perseus. Yes. He was so, it was so fun reading his chapters because he was- good. Just, just this annoying little shit that I was like, was delightful. Um, but I was curious at the end, um, were you tempted to give him any sort of comeuppance or anything? Cause I was, I was kind of waiting for him to, you know, have something. Yeah, I wasn't, but... I wasn't. I, because he's, he's quite an interesting character, I think. Um, because we tend to see him through the lens of not exclusively, but, routinely we see him through the lens of Athene's eyes mm -hmm. and she of course has absolutely no interest in him she's sort of compelled to help him because he is the son of Zeus and Zeus sort of insists on it but she's got no interest in him as a person and so he comes across as crushingly stupid to her like mm -hmm. barely able to function and yet I'm not sure that I think he's particularly stupid he's a bit helpless but they, there's just no possibility of these two completely different categories of being ever understanding each other you know to her he's the same as like an ant or something is to us you know she's mm -hmm. gigantically bigger 
but she sort of brings herself down to mortal size as gods tend to when they um, negotiate with people. Um, but she's going to live forever and he's going to live for like eight seconds, you know, in her kind of way of looking at the world. What's the point? You know, she, at one point she even says, you know, it doesn't matter if he's getting better at something, does it? I mean, he'll be dead in a minute. And, yeah, and she really she means it. She's, yeah. yeah, there's no value in trying to understand him for her. And equally from the other end of it, he can't possibly understand what it's like to be. To, to him, she's just pointlessly cruel and heartless. But how, how could she be anything else? So they're, they're sort of destined not to understand each other. Um, and yet, as the book goes on, in my opinion, um, he changes far more than she does. But of course, her timeline is, is a, a vastly longer one than his. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my view, he becomes, he he undergoes a sort of time-honoured and traditional hero's journey. It's just that I'm questioning the terms on which that is judged. So he becomes, as the book goes on, more like her. He cares less about human lives. He's more heartless. He's more ruthless. He's petulant, you know, mm-hmm. and brutal at the same time. But that means that he's actually fulfilling the part of him which is half God because mm. that's how they behave all the time. So I know some people have been like, oh, poor Perseus. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, no, of course that reading is completely there. If you want it, it's it's there. But in my view, he becomes, he, he is fulfilled as a, as a half God, half man. He becomes more godly than manly. It's just that that's not something that you or I would necessarily see as a desirable outcome. Mm-hmm. And I think the um, when he gets the power that Medusa's head brings him, I think that also yeah. helps him. Absolutely, him because now he has that, you know, it, in artistic terms, this is his epiphany, right? Now he mm. has his maximal power. because And the fact that he's had to do terrible things in order to get it doesn't change the fact that he's, he's now got it. I mean, gods are always doing terrible things in <laughs> ancient texts, so that's not really a particular surprise but yeah the the fact that he has this power and the fact that he his conscience has basically been sort of abandoned or sort of squashed from him as as his quest has gone on you know people whenever he's shown any kind of scruple it hasn't really helped him and the more heartless he's been the more successful he becomes so he learns to be a worse person by becoming more like a god mm-hmm. um which is uh secretly i guess not very um, religious mindset to have but I don't think very many people will notice <laughs> um I also do want to talk briefly about um Medusa's death scene um which I found utterly devastating when it's the snakes whispering to each other and you have that yeah inevitability spoiler. about it <laughs> but yeah well yeah. spoiler alert um and it kind of brought to mind for me um the song of Achilles where it's this you know ancient Greek story it's one you know well you know how it's going to happen. Um, and you're sort of hoping against hope that it's not going to go that way, except unlike Song of Achilles, you know, we know that story. We've always been on Patroclus' side, whereas Stoneblind, yeah. we're not used to feeling that sympathy for Medusa. So it really turns it on its head in a, in, I think, a very effective way. Yeah, I hope so. But yeah, it's a, uh... It, yes it was a it was a sort of weird scene to write it took me a couple of days to build up to it and normally I'm quite a quick writer I say mm. as a woman with a deadline um <laughs> but normally I am quite quick and mm. with that scene I took a couple of days two or three days and I was reasonably sort of sure that 
I mean, I knew structurally that her death scene would form the the end of that act, that section of the book. Um, and I was reasonably sure that I wanted that I wanted to it to be told from multiple voices who had a a proximity to it that made their account absolutely undeniable that these would be the most um, first-hand witnesses you could possibly have of a murder. And it still took me a few days. I was sort of building up to it and building up to it. And I, I don't know, I, I wasn't ready. And then I wasn't ready again. And then I wasn't ready. And then I, it was like six o'clock. Normally I sit down at my desk at sort of lunchtime and then um, I do admin and boring things in the morning. And then I sit down at my desk to write in the afternoons. And then, you know, I write a thousand words and then I get up, up from my desk and then it's done. And I just, Stoneblind took me the same number of days, but maybe eight times the number of hours of any other book I've ever written. Because I spent my whole time sitting here like, maybe I need a biscuit. <laughs> I'm going to get a biscuit and coming back. Maybe I need a diet coat. Go and get a diet coat. Maybe the washing needs hanging up, goes and hangs up washing, etc. And this day, I it went so it was nearly dark, and it was the summer for sure when I when I was writing that point. So it must have been I don't know June, and it was still. And I texted my friend Robert, um, and said I really want to do this chapter like this. Am I mad? And we text every single day. Every single day I sent him a picture and every single day he responds. That's it. That's the, you know, that's the thing that we have. We've done it for years. Um, and he rang me. I mean, and, you know, and I, I like most people now, I think when my phone rings, I look at it a bit like a caveman who's just seen fire for the first time. I'm like, <laughs> And I picked it up and I went, hello. And he said, yes, of course you should do like that. It should be like Beckett. I went, right, okay. And we talked about it for about 40 minutes. Um, and I was like oh that's really great thank you so much and I got off the phone and I was like well it was getting you know the end of the day when I started that chapter and now it's definitely and I came straight to my desk and I'm like well obviously I'm not going to start now I should be making dinner now and I wrote the whole scene in one go and I, I mean almost nothing about that scene has changed since that day um, no. it was just the act of talking to somebody who I mean he's a professor of English at, at Oxford so he knows what he's talking about with books in general um, I would say but it was <laughs> that thing help. where yeah, I mean, we judged the Booker Prize together in in 2013. So we'd read 151 novels in 204 days together. So we had we'd been through this very intense reading group, to put it mildly. Um, and so yeah, when I came to the bit where I was going to write that scene, and and we'd had this conversation, I was like, yeah, this is exactly how it is. And I just wrote it straight through. And I thought at the end of it, well, it's either going to really work, or it's really going to not work. And I'll just I'll I'll kind of go back and reread this section and then I'll come back to it at the end and I'll see if it feels like I've written the climax to this act. And I got back and I was like, yeah, I'm okay with that, I think. Um and I knew that it was going to be tricky for the audiobook because I do the audiobooks now. Um and that bit is written like a play. So there's no stage directions even. It's just dialogue. It's just the name mm. of a character and dialogue and then another name and then dialogue. And I was like, I definitely don't have as many voices. <laughs> this is some. This is required much more skill than I've got. And so I had to do it quite kind of cool and calm, but it still felt right even doing that. So yeah, it it was a. It was always the thing I was intending to do with that chapter, and at the same time, I got quite kind of panicky when I got there. And then when I'd finished it, I was certain it was exactly the thing I was meant to do. Mm. Now I want to go listen to the audiobook of it. Oh, well, good. I hope so. Because it was really, <laughs> we have a really good time. But I've done three with Lydia, who produced it. Um, 
we've done ships pandora and stoneblind together and stoneblind um i was reasonably because when we did ships i was fully on top of everything except for the scene where Andromache scene right near the end of the book and then I cried when I wrote it I cried when I edited it and if you listen to the audiobook you can hear I am crying as I read that part and then we did Pandora and it's so happy and sunny it's just me kind of breezing my way around everything it was all really nice and then we did Stone Blind and we're like okay so we've got some sexual assault coming up it's like yeah we'll just do this chapter and then we'll go out and have a cake And she's an ultra marathoner, my um, audio producer. She is the calmest, most zen person. She can literally run a hundred miles in state of complete calm. And we got to the last section of the last day we were recording. She was like, I'm not really sure how I'm going to feel about the last bit. I was like, no, me either. And I thought, oh, Lydia is so kind. She's making sure I know that if I fall apart, it'll be all right. Because she remembers from last, she's so kind. And so we went in, we're like, we'll give it a go. And I read the very last chapter, which is quite spare, I guess. And um, I made it all the way through without crying. And I was really, I was like, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do this, but it's really spare. And I'm not bringing any emotion to it because I, it's sort of there already. And, and that it felt like the right thing. And I was like, okay, good. I've done it. And I did the last bit and I looked up but like every part of me is waiting to basically patted on the head and given a cookie because I've achieved it and there's Lydia in the control room like this broken you I've broken Lydia and had to grab tissues from off the desk and run round and take them to the control booth she was so sad I felt terrible oh well oh, brave Lydia yeah. so I've promised Lydia. I'll stop breaking her heart <laughs> well I can't wait until you break Lydia for whatever your next book is going to be. Uh, well, the next one is nonfiction. So you get the sequel to Pandora's Jar next, but I'm not oh. allowed to tell you the title. Um, All right, and then the one after that is a novel and that probably will break everyone's hearts, I'm afraid. Okay, good. I will I will look forward to both of them. Um, and hopefully good. we'll get to talk again about, the, about those next ones. Yes, please. Good. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Natalie, for joining us. Always a pleasure. Yeah, for me too. Thanks for having me. Take care. Talk soon. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.